Richard, it's a real honor to have you on with us today. I think you gave a amazing uh, presentation at our conference in Abu Dhabi, and unfortunately, we were going to have you in May uh, at our conference, but uh, here we are virtually. And I thought this book was very timely because it, it, it came out right around graduation. And I remember hearing you speak about the book and suggesting for people to read the book upon graduation. It would give them a primer on what is going on around the world, uh, but also starting at a spot where people could understand how this world order that we're living in now, and it's obviously changing, but, but how the world order sort of got constructed. And, and some people think that we're still fighting the First World War. Uh, some people think we're still fighting that in the Middle East and so forth. So uh, I, would, I would love to have you start first with your background. Uh, I think you have one of the more fascinating American stories where you've, uh, uh, you were ra raised here in New York, but you went on to become this internationalist and uh, great geopolitical thinker. Uh, and then I want to talk about wh where we are today and how we got there. But tell us a little bit about you first. Well, thank you, Anthony, and thank you, John. Uh, great to be back with you. Sorry, it's uh, only that's virtual rather than uh, in person. Look, I've had, I've been really lucky. I I've had the kind of career that uh, you can only have in the United States. In most other countries, you you pretty much have to decide early on what you're going to do when you grow up. And one of the good things, many good things about this country, is that you you there's flexibility. And I've been able to go in and out of government, so I worked for four different uh, presidents. And I, on the outside, I've been at you know, various think tanks and uh, universities. Now I'm at the Council on Foreign Relations. So in that sense, uh, it's, you know, it's been incredibly uh, interesting. Uh, I got into this field really uh, for two reasons. One is when I came of age, Vietnam was a big debate in the 60s. I was too young for civil rights to be the formative debate. So I got interested in the world. And what really led me in this direction was I had a professor of religion at Oberlin. When I got to campus in 69, I said, who's the best professor? People said, it's Professor Frank. And I said, okay, what does he teach? And they said, New Testament. And I said, well, that's interesting. That's not the one we read in our house, but uh, I'm willing to try it. <laughs> um, I did. And as you know, a good teacher can make any subject fantastic. He was a great teacher. I got involved from there, spent time in the Middle East uh, and so forth. And one thing led to another, led to another. And if there's anyone young watching this, I'd say, don't overplan your life. Just do interesting things. And it'll add up to be an interesting uh, life. And I've been going in and out of government uh, ever since. So when I'm out, uh, my life is two halves. Uh, one half is the uh, running of institutions now for nearly 18 years, the Council on Foreign Relations. And the other half is essentially putting ideas out into the public conversation, whether in books, articles, TV, podcasts, Twitter, uh, events like this, what, what, what have you. Uh, but I just think, you know, right now it's an important time to do these things because there's so many things in play that it's, it's not a time to, uh, to sit back. I really do think it's a time to, to, to jump in. So, so tell us why you wrote this book. What was the idea behind it? You've written, obviously, many different books. Uh, 2017, yeah. The World in Disarray. But this is a different book. This is a book where somebody could pick it up if they landed from Mars and said, OK, what's going on on planet Earth? And how is the geopolitical system set up? And what are the challenges for the people of Earth? Tell, tell, tell us about that. 
Well, you're right. All my previous books were books written. How do I put this? For people one way or another, kind of like me, people in the foreign policy debate, people who had made this a big interest or even their their careers. And it's a kind of insider's debate. Every field has them. Economists have them. Scientists have them. Where you're writing at a level where you can assume a lot of knowledge, assume a lot of uh, background, and you're essentially making arguments. You want to change the the thinking of uh, people. This is this is fundamentally different. I came to the conclusion a few years ago. I guess two things. One is I'd said a lot of what I had to say, particularly in the Disarray book and some other books. Foreign policy begins at home, and at some point, as an academic, you've got to avoid the temptation to to rewrite your books. You got to move on. And that also uh, in this country and around the world, you had an extraordinary number of people who simply didn't have the basic knowledge and understanding in order to be an informed citizen. And in that, I'm a Jeffersonian. I believe democracy thrives only when its citizens are informed. And I hate the idea that people say this November are going to vote for a candidate without having thought hard about the issues or hard about their stances on some of the foreign policy issues even though what that person would do if they're elected would have tremendous consequences for all of us. And the problem is you can go to uh, Harvard or Stanford or any other elite university, not to mention the non-elite universities and colleges, not to mention high schools, and you can graduate essentially illiterate, unknowing about the world. These courses either are not offered in high school or if they're offered in in college and university, they're not required. And way, way too many Americans are leaving campus essentially not equipped to deal with uh, this global world we find ourselves in. Or if you're my age and you maybe studied it 40 or 50 years ago, whatever you studied was obsolete. Technology has changed. The Cold War has been over for for three decades. If you watch the nightly news, you're not going to pick up much of anything about the uh, world. If you go on the Internet, the problem is it's all there, but so is a ton of other stuff that's junk. And there's nobody there to point you to the right sites and say, read this, ignore that. So what I decided to do was to try to write a primer, or as the Brits call it, a primer, I think, that would essentially be one-stop shopping, that would give you the foundation, make you a more informed citizen, help you navigate all that's going on. Hopefully, it would also lead you to read other books. But even if not, my, my goal was to kind of bring people to a level where they, again, could be more informed citizens, make, make better decisions politically. And personally, and what this is, is a relatively short 300 plus page book, assumes nothing, uh, explains everything. And the idea is to make it interesting and accessible. And hopefully, hopefully uh, I I will have succeeded. Well, listen, it's it's a great narrative as well. And I, I, I love reading the book. And we were talking before we went on on the air live about certain chapters. Uh, But when you go back to World War One. Uh, in some ways, we're still fighting World War One, as you point out. And in and, and, and World War One, we got the treaty wrong. Obviously, you point that out as well. Uh, and the Middle East, the Sykes-Picot Treaty and the evacuation of the Ottoman Empire from the Middle East is still with us today. So what would you say to people about how we got to where we are today and what do we need to do to I think we would both acknowledge we've had 75 reasonably good years of peace and prosperity as a result of the post-World War II architecture, but that is fraying, and obviously President Trump is uh, dismantling parts of it. Uh, but take us back, World War I, World War II, the architecture, and where we are today. 
I think you set it up exactly, uh, exactly right. You know, we came out of World War One, which was meant to be the world, the war to end all wars. And two decades later, the world was back at war. So something went drastically wrong. And what went wrong was the United States embraced isolationism. We rejected the, the League of Nations. We, reject, uh, we rejected trade. We embraced uh, protectionism. With the Depression, you had the rise of uh, populism and extreme uh, nationalism. Countries weren't serious about uh, security, didn't react to threats when they happened. And like I said, by the late 30s, we were back in, 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 in a global uh, war. And, what it, and the United States, for all of its efforts, couldn't avoid the consequences, couldn't stay out. So there's lots of lessons in this. There, there's lots of lessons about the folly of isolationism. There's the lessons that, like it or not, the world matters. There's the importance of working with others rather than with you, rather than unilaterally. There's the risks of uh, protectionism. We want to, both for reasons of wealth, but also to create connections. We want trade to be a, uh, a, 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 a vibrant thing. And coming out of World War II, what was so interesting is the people who led the United States after World War II, beginning with President Harry Truman and those around him, they, they went to school on the lessons of after World War I. They read that stuff. They were old enough in many cases to have lived through it. And they were determined not to repeat the mistakes. So you didn't have a return to isolationism. We didn't escape back behind the Atlantic and Pacific oceans. We entered into alliances, including uh, NATO. We built great global institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, the precursor of the World Trade Organization, uh, the UN, and, uh, and so forth. We got the American people to support a, an American role in the uh, world. You know, Atchison wrote his memoirs under the title Present at the Creation. Well, it's not modest, but it's actually accurate. This was a truly, indeed, the most creative moment in American foreign policy. And we've been riding their wave for 70, 75 years. And as you say, it's framed. A lot of these institutions were never designed for this era. Lots of challenges that we now had didn't exist then. You didn't have climate change, didn't have cyberspace. North Korea, Iran didn't have any nuclear materials. You know, the world was a couple of billion people. Now it's nearly 8 billion uh, people and, and on and on. So we don't have the institutional basis uh, anymore. And I think what's also happened is now a lot of Americans don't see the benefits because they don't know this history or don't see it the same way I do, don't see the benefits of America's involvement in the world. They only see the, uh, the cost. They, only, they look selectively at the mistakes we've made at the Iraqs or Vietnams rather than at the, the larger areas where we've uh, got it right. And suddenly, once again, we find ourselves in debates where against the backdrop of rising great power rivalry, against all these global challenges, we have the United States, again, flirting with isolationism, flirting with uh, unilateralism, uh, flirting with uh, protectionism. So, you know, I'm not saying uh, a war is inevitable. I'm not saying we're in 1936 now. I'm not making that argument. But there are certain echoes. You know, Mark Twain's line, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. There's some rhyming about the post-World War I uh, era. And uh, we need to take its, its lessons to heart because good things just don't happen, you know. Peace and order don't just happen because they're inevitable or they're the natural way of things. To the contrary, they're the unnatural way of things. And if we want peace and prosperity to happen, we have to work hard with others to make them happen. Well, I mean, one of the points that I've heard you make on television, you make it on Twitter, you make it, you, you, you lace it into the book. And I think it's in 
important. I want to get your reaction to this. The, the precursor to the World Trade Organization was the General Agreements of Trade and Tariffs. And when that was designed, there was a coordinated effort by the State Department and Treasury and more or less a bipartisan effort to make those trade deals uneven. The United States being the last industrial superpower, uh, existing capitalist superpower after World War II, we wanted to have a burgeoning middle class and rising living standards around the world. I saw your interview with, I think it was Dr. Steele, who wrote the Marshall Plan uh, at the Council of Foreign Relations. It was a brilliant book about us rebuilding infrastructure outside the United States to shore up prosperity around the world, to not only protect it from communism, but also to create a flourishing uh, dynamic market for people. And, you know, that unevenness caught up to us a little bit. You know, President Trump obviously has challenged that unevenness. So let's say you were the foreign policy czar. Let's say you were present at a new creation uh, and you had Dean Atkinson's role today. What type of orchestrate infrastructure, architecture, would you discard that you think is obsolete? And what type of things would you build for the world that you think would help us into the 21st century? There's a zillion things I could say, but let me focus on two. One is I would probably think about architectures in the plural rather than a singular one. There's not going to be a UN or anything else that's going to solve or manage our problems for us. Instead, we're going to have to think about separate arrangements for separate challenges. Might be different, not might be, will, will be, or needs to be different participants. So for example, if you're worried about climate change, you might say, let's bring the most uh, important, significant industrial countries into this. We don't need 190 countries. We can, we can probably get by with 15. Uh, so we'll do it with, uh, with them and we'll set up an arrangement there that would encourage certain types of uh, behaviors. In cyber, I would say we would begin with the more, the more open societies because we're more likely to have something in common about what the rules of the road ought to be. Uh, we've done certain things with, say, Iran or North Korea. And that way we bring together a handful of countries to provide a, a negotiating uh, a forum. So what I would have is a, a kind of designer multilateralism. And in some cases, by the way, if, say I was going to deal with global health, Anthony, I would have maybe the Gates Foundation, some of the big pharma companies. I, 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 you don't have to be a, I don't think you should limit yourself to countries. If you're dealing with cyberspace, you'd want to have Google and Facebook and Apple and Twitter in the, uh, in the uh, room. So one would be, I'd spend a lot of time designing a new set of architectures that would be multilateral and, and would be in each case, bringing together those who are willing, able, relevant to, uh, to the to, to deal with the uh, to the to the challenge that'd be one thing I would do, and but it, but it, and it would need to be a creative situation led by the United States working with others. That'd be one thing. The other is and this goes back even further in history. You talked about World War One, going back to the rise of the modern era. It's actually the 17th century, the rise of the idea of sovereignty of sovereign states respecting one another's borders, not changing them by force. I think that's still important. We learned the hard way when Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait 30 years ago, when Russia went into uh, Ukraine. Uh, we need respect for borders. We don't want to live in a world of mayhem. And even now, we want to have respect for borders also against cyber. What Russia what Russia's doing is outrageous and shouldn't be able to get away with that sort of thing. But I would argue that's not enough. What we've learned also the hard way is that our, our respect for sovereignty can't be absolute. 
We already acknowledged that with genocide. If a country wants to kill or allow millions of people to be killed within their borders, I don't think sovereignty gives them that right. If a country wants to harbor terrorists within its borders and those terrorists mount attacks against us or anybody else, as the Taliban learned after 9-11, sovereignty doesn't protect you. If Brazil wants to destroy the Amazon rainforest, that would have cataclysmic consequences for global efforts against climate change. I don't see why Brazil should have the right just because the rainforest largely falls on its uh, territory. Countries need to meet certain obligations in dealing with the outbreaks of disease. China didn't. We're all paying a price uh, for it. Uh, just because North Korea wants to have uh, nuclear weapons, I don't believe they should have the, the right to do it. So what I, what I think we need to do is begin the conversation about a world that has a, a different operating system. And it includes sovereignty, the good parts of it, but it can't be absolute. We need to start to condition sovereignty on responsible uh, behavior, on countries meeting certain agreed upon obligations. So those would be the two things I'd, I'd emphasize, a new operating system for the world and new institutions to deal with, with global challenges. The rest of it, we know how to deal with. We know how to deal with rising great powers and the rest. We have a playbook for that. But these other two things, I think, need to be new. Well, I mean, but there's another there's another thing that's unspoken that we you and I are always talking about, which is the specter of nationalism. And it's the specter of politicians that seize on nationalism rather than being transformative and trying to calm things down. They use that jingoism as a way to gain power. And so there's a there's an issue related to that. We don't have to go into it today. I want to turn it over to questions. Uh, but before I get there, though, I saw you on Morning Joe this morning discussing the incident with China and the situation in Houston with the Chinese consulate. And I thought you said something very interesting about you could use a sledgehammer or you could bring a scalpel to a situation like this. And so for people that maybe are not as aware of this issue as you and I are, tell us a little bit about the issue and tell us about what's going on in the China-U.S. relationship and what you're concerned about and what we need to do to improve that relationship. So this is for those who slept in this morning and didn't watch the morning. Day. The, 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 uh, no, look, what China that, That's has you, John Dorsey. Pay attention, okay? I know you I, missed I don't have morning. cable. I'm not, I'm not one of these baby boomers that still has their cable box. You know, I'm a streamer. Right, John was clearly, he was clearly organizing his room, so Room Raider would give him a higher rating. That's it, not it, exactly it, I was right. so, I just have to say, Dr. Haas, I was so happy when you blinked in with a room that crushed John Dorsey, okay? <laughs> and what I said to Dr. House is I gave him an 11 over a Scaramucci, which is an 11 out of 11, John. Okay, so you can take the fake so George Washington. It. You can take the fake George Washington picture down now. Okay, he's crushed you with the globe and even like the beautiful <laughs> lighting and everything. All right, but let's go to, let's go to China and tell us uh, yeah, uh, who you think we look, are. Tell us about that issue and how is it going to play out, or what would you like? How would you look, like to see it play out? China's doing lots of things that where we have every right to be uh, strongly opposed to, whether it's the theft of intellectual property, at times using students to do espionage, giving them getting access to American laboratories uh, associated with American uh, universities or the private sector. So there's lots that China's doing here that should give us pause. Obviously, same holds for the rest of the world. But closing a consulate's not the response. If, if there, if I would, if I had been in the State Department, I would have said, okay, we would go to the Chinese foreign minister or to their ambassador in Washington and say, look, we have the goods on these guys. So you would, you either withdraw them or we're going to kick them out. 
and we don't want, we're not going to do this publicly. We're not going to embarrass you, but this is unacceptable behavior. If we have real problems with their students, we would go to the Chinese ambassador or foreign minister and say, hey, we're all in favor of your students coming here to study. We're not in favor of your students coming here to do espionage. So we're going to force these students to leave or we're going to start denying your certain students, students from China access to certain types of uh, laboratories and all that, because we just don't trust that they're le legitimate students. Again, we would do it quietly. We're not out to to start uh, a major cycle of, of action and, and reaction of tit for tat. The fact that we didn't do that, we made this public. This guarantees the Chinese are going to shut down at least one of our uh, consulates. We have, each have a half dozen consulates. So what are they going to do? Shut our consulate, say, in uh, Hong Kong? How is that going to help us? How is that going to help us monitor events uh, there? We use other consulates in China to keep an eye, not just on China, but on some of its neighbors. How is that going to help us? It's a lot easier for China to have people in the United States moving about keeping an eye on us than it is for us to have Americans in China. We need these, we, these consulates. So it seems to me this is really self-defeating in the narrow sense that we're, we're going to make ourselves a little bit more blind, shall we, uh, shall we say. Um, we're not going to fundamentally affect China's ability to monitor what, what we are, are doing. And this is going to contribute to the momentum of the breakdown of the most important relationship in this era of history. And, yeah, call me cynical. Uh, but it looks to me this is far more about American politics and the run up to the November election uh, to look, quote unquote, tough on China than it is about anything in terms of foreign policy. So we're going to go to some audience John, questions, yep. Dr. Haas. Um, you talked about the crumbling of these global uh, supranational organizations and the rise of of nationalism, especially in the United States. Is that rise in nationalism and the erosion of those global uh, that, that global order, is that a, a disease that's born out of rising income inequality? Is it a disease born out of uh, just a lack of education about history? Is it a disease that's born out of the fact that the, the greatest generation is dying off? Bob Dole just turned 97 yesterday, and I think it reminded people of sort of an era uh, that, that's gone. It, and is Trump a symptom of the disease, or is he the disease itself that's causing uh, the crumbling of these organizations? I think to some extent it's useful, John, to distinguish between populism and nationalism. And I think uh, a lot of the populism does derive from uh, living standards that are either drifting or actually in some cases uh, uh, going down. I think nationalism is something that's also a response at times to a sense of uh, losing out. People aren't comfortable with, with, with trends, with their, with their own trajectory, and they're looking for other things to grab onto. I think political leaders at times put them out there because they can be popular. Blame scapegoat immigrants, scapegoat uh, foreign comp competition, and so forth. So I think all of these are uh, pretty much in the playbook of responses to difficult uh, times. It's one of the reasons that it's important to have things like growing economies and the rest. I think Donald Trump is both a reflection of this and a driver of it. I think Trumpism, you know, like you know, when you think about the context he got elected, you know, it was after Iraq and Afghanistan, the sense that we'd overreached after the 2007-8 economic crisis, the financial crisis. I think there was a general sense that the establishment and elites had let the country down. So people were willing to take a flyer on this outsider. Uh, and what I think we're realizing is that bad situations can get worse, uh, that um, 
and and the question is whether we 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 self-correct or or not. We're and we're seeing it around the world. We're seeing, uh, you know, we saw it in Brazil. We're seeing it in Mexico. What we're also seeing, though, in a lot of these places is that who's ever in power is being held to responsible and to account. So when people in power do well in this challenge, say like uh, Angela Merkel in Germany, or say the governor of Rhode Island, Gina Raimondo, or the prime minister of New Zealand, their numbers go way up. And when a Bolsonaro uh, or an Lopez Obrador does bad in Brazil or Mexico, respectively, I think their numbers will will go down. The Iranian government is under uh, pressure from below because they're performing. uh, Donald Trump's numbers have gone down dramatically because he has performed badly on on COVID-19. So I, I, I think these things go in waves. I just think the the, the you know the danger now is uh, whether things begin to get out of hand. That countries are you know that the normal stuff of foreign policy and diplomacy breaks down, and that leaders become prisoners either of the, the nationalism and populism in some ways that brought them to power. And I think particularly in the U.S. Chinese relationship right now, both countries would pay an enormous price from further deterioration in the relationship. But I can't sit here and tell you it's not going to happen. At the moment, the the momentum is bad. You write in the book that climate change may be, and this is a quote, the defining issue of this century. And you touched on it briefly earlier about how we might be able to tackle that issue in a multinational, international type of framework. Do you believe that in the current environment, we're going to be able to marshal a global response? And in your opinion, what exactly should that uh, global response look like to tackle climate change? The reason I think climate change could be that defining is I think the potential of it to, to change so many dimensions of life on earth are great. Shortages of water, loss of uh, access to arable land. There's a great piece, by the way, in today's New York Times, and it's one of those graphics, dynamic, and I don't know what they're called, interactives, but it talks about the hundreds of millions of people who are likely to be turned into forced migrants because of climate change over the next 50 years. And just think of that, if we have hundreds of millions of people, where are they gonna go? Uh, what's that, what are going to be the implications of that? Not just for human life, for disease, uh, for political stability in the countries they, they, they go to. So I think climate change in and of itself is really bad and it will set in motion other uh, trends. I think there's two ways to deal with it. And by the way, we've not done the right way. So far, we've done what I call the UN General Assembly approach. We try to get everybody together and we try to get them to agree to a formula. And historically, we've now had three three formulas. We've had cap and trade. We've had a global carbon tax. And now we have the Paris approach. Not one has worked at all. And even if the United States were part of Paris, it's, so, it's such an inadequate framework. It doesn't, it's, not worth, it's not worth the effort, really. Uh, so I think there's two answers on climate change. One is the top-down approach. And as I said, I would get, uh, if, I were, if the United States were in something like TPP, that'd be a great place to start. And you basically say, if you want to export to a TPP country, we represent nearly half the world's markets. Great. But if you're using coal to produce something, uh-uh, there's going to be a tariff on it. There's ways to incentivize people to, to improve their climate uh, performance, things like that. And then I think the other thing is from below, the ground up, which is uh, fuels. And I would be putting massive amounts of uh, money into research through the energy department and otherwise. Uh, for everything from working on hydrogen as a fuel to renewables and so forth. And to some extent, some of this is happening. We're beginning to see the market. Regulatory policy. I would be very demanding of automobiles and trucks. 
and you know, with the so-called cafe standards. Uh, in my experience, Detroit responds well, so long as they know what the rules are and they know what they're, they're not gonna change. They're, they're, they're able to meet demanding uh, guidelines. So I would essentially create a framework where we make tremendous innovation and I would make this a priority for innovation. And then I'd be thinking about when we do have breakthroughs, how we share them with the rest of the world, almost like we did with HIV medications. If we have certain technologies that are major uh, assets in the battle against climate change, we should think about making them globally available. And then we should also create these, these trade-related frameworks for incentivizing countries to, quote unquote, clean up their acts. And uh, so I would have a two-pronged uh, or three-pronged approach, regulation, innovation, and a different approach to global frameworks. And I, I, but we better get going on this. This is a, say one other thing, sorry to go on so long. No problem. This is a really hard issue to deal with because it's a slow motion crisis. And in my experience, uh, governments and particularly democracies don't do well with uh, slow motion crises. A little bit of like a lot of the business men and women who are part of uh, you know, SALT. There's, uh, you know, there's, we all face the pressure of the urgent crowding out the important. So like right now, for example, we're dealing with PPP and putting people back to work in this country because of uh, COVID-19 and issues dealing with climate are pushed off. The, well, we don't have, we know the luxury of dealing with them. But why wouldn't we marry PPP with climate change? Why couldn't we say if you're going to get X billions of dollars from the government, you're going to have to you're gonna, you can't use coal or you're going to have to adopt this uh, these set of regulatory standards. So I think it's a mistake uh, not to deal with this now and to think we can wait till tomorrow, because uh, this, this, this is not a good bottle of Bordeaux. The option, you know, it ain't going to get better if we lay it down for a, a day, a week, a month, a year, or 10 years. The options are only going to get, they're only going to get worse. Another great primer you offer in the book is the idea of, of why having the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency is such a powerful weapon for the United States, both from an economic and a you know, the State Department uses it as a weapon in, in uh, pulling levers of power in certain parts of the world. Could you explain to our audience why that global reserve currency status is so important for the United States? Sure. It's uh, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, who became the president of France when he was uh, their finance minister, called the phrase he called it was, uh, it conveyed on us, referred on us, exorbitant privilege. Uh, essentially means we can uh, do what we need to do in terms of you know, the Fed can do what it needs to do in terms of managing the American economy and the whole world basically goes, uh, re responds to it. It means that if we chalk up debt and we've obviously chalked up a lot of it, it's in dollars. We don't have to worry about changing rates. I mean, imagine if all of our debt were in some other currency and suddenly uh, the dollar weakened against it, our debt would go up by whatever percentage the dollar weakened uh, against it. It means if we do want to uh, introduce certain types of sanctions. The dollar is the the mechanism by which we we do it. So it gives us tremendous economic and political advantage. Uh, the problem is the rest of the world is beginning to grow a little bit uncomfortable with it. One is we've overly weaponized it. Two, we've uh, amassed this enormous debt. Three, we've politicized the Fed to some extent. President's attacks on Jay Powell. Uh, four, our response to COVID nineteen has raised questions about our competence. Fifth, the worsening of relations with allies over trade and with Chinese over everything has made others less willing to live in a dollar-denominated world, less willing to live with the dollar as a reserve currency, in part because it does give us influence and advantage. So I think what we're doing is hastening the emergence, not of an alternative world, but of rivals. 
And my guess is in a number of years, uh, the, the dollar won't be nearly as dominant as it, as it is now. And that we're, we're, we will pay a political and economic price because we'll, we'll lose some of our advantage, some of our influence. So we have multiple questions on China. We'll wrap up with this question that I'm going to aggregate into one. And you touched on U.S.-China relations, but let's envision a scenario whereby Joe Biden wins the election in November. Obviously, the the tone and the approach that the Trump administration has taken towards China has weakened China economically. And frankly, it's weakened the United States economically to some extent. Uh, what do you see as the future direction of U.S.-China relations? What's your view on the risk of military conflict in the South China Sea where tensions are rising? And do you think China might take a little bit more of an appeasement type of approach as it relates to the United States to sort of hit the reset button on that relationship if we have a new administration? It's a good question. I've been thinking about it a lot. Uh, my own view is U.S.-Chinese relations are going to be difficult and troubled regardless of what happens this November. Uh, if you look at the people advising Vice President Biden, uh, if anything, they care far more and far, they've been far more consistent in their concerns about Hong Kong, the Uyghurs, human rights in China. They uh, have been far more consistent uh, about their concerns about the South China Sea. Uh, on economics, they've been less preoccupied with uh, the level of American exports to China, the, the kind of phase one trade deal sort of stuff that the, that's animated the uh, president. So my point is simply, I think U.S.-Chinese relations are going to be troubled uh, regardless. I think the problem, the probably the difference in a Biden approach is it'll enlist allies a lot more in Asia and in Europe, and it would be less by Twitter and more by classical dip diplomacy. And I think that's important. So you could have, so I think the fundamental differences would be there. No one should kid themselves. This is going to be awfully difficult, but I think the approach might increase the odds that you have a uh, slightly better chance of at least lowering the the temperature, but we shouldn't kid ourselves. The, the differences, particularly on trade, are profound about it's everything from intellectual property protection to uh, the role of the state in the economy. These are fundamental uh, uh, differences to what, again, I said over human rights, over Ch And China is clearly entering a, what seems to be a new phase of its foreign policy. China's come a long way since Deng Xiaoping, the idea of hiding and biding your time. Well, it's clear to me that Xi Jinping has essentially said, we're done hiding, we're done biting. We're here. The, the future is now. We're more assertive. Look at it. Look what they did with India. Look at the South China Sea with Vietnam. Look at what they've been, what they've done in Hong Kong. Look at what they're saying and uh, doing vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. So I think we have to begin from the assumption that this is going to be uh, both the most important and in some ways the most challenging relationship we uh, we have. And I think it'll be difficult and challenging under, uh, regardless of what happens uh, uh, this, this, this November. Well, Dr. Haas, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Again, we, we really enjoyed having you at SALT Abu Dhabi, and we look forward to having you at, at a future SALT conference, uh, either in Vegas or elsewhere. Uh, but thanks again for joining us. Richard, before you go, what is the next book? Have you thought about it yet? <laughs> well, first, uh, you're, you're great to ask. Uh, I can produce one about every three years since I have a day job at the Council on Foreign Relations. First, I'll produce a paperback for this and a new edition of The World in Disarray. I'll put those out uh, next spring. And then I'll start thinking seriously about the, uh, about the, uh, the next book. So I, I need a little... Uh, 
I think when you write books, you kind of go through a cycle of decompression after you finish. Sure. And you, you finish it, you go out and promote it. I'll do the you know, forwards to the paperback edition of this one and the last one. And then I will, uh, I will I'll put my feet up and I don't know about you, but uh, uh, I walk a lot when I think about books. So I'll, I'll, I'll increase my step count. <laughs> and that'll help me get that'll help me come up with the next book. All right. Well, well, a, 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 a terrific rendition of what's going on. I'm going to hold the book up one more time before we say goodbye. Uh, fantastic book. Uh, I recommend it to all the college kids that are, are listening in on this. And Richard, I hope I get a chance to see you in person soon. When we get back to breakfast. Uh, you're a great voice in the debate and we loved having you on. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you, John. Be safe and well, all of you. Thank Take you. Care. You too, sir. 